All right, we're going. I'm four minutes late. Here we go. We have unexpected grace. You like that? Now, the question of the night is this. How can evil work for good and God be the author of enmity in any kind of form? How can God do that? We're going to get to that later. Um, This is where unexpected grace, though, comes into play. And as we are in Genesis 3, we have already seen that there has been uh, the depravity of man. We've, we've seen the, uh, the aspect of sin, uh, the temptation, uh, the consequences that come with that. We think of the guilt and the shame. Then we think of, uh, you know, of course, as they uh, run and hide from God, and uh, God uh, presents Himself in the garden. And uh, what, what we look at tonight is going to be dealing with how grace works in uh, a most interesting situation that you would never expect. And usually people define grace as what? Unmerited favor. And there's nothing wrong with that. I think that's probably a good way to sum it up. Uh, Or it's God's provision for the undeserving. But no matter how you come up with it in human terms, it still is weak. You know, when you define it, it still doesn't describe it exactly what the fullness of, of it really is. We do the best we can. Um, but someone has said God's grace is not only to the undeserving, but those who deserve the exact opposite. Of course, I think that's kind of where it brings in mercy also. But uh, He brings it in for the undeserving, but uh, also... Um, those who deserve the exact opposite and that's what He gives it uh, to them, this grace. And did you know that everything that God gives actually is gracious? Everything that God gives is gracious. And you think of the air we breathe, the uh, actions, emotions that we have in our body and we're physically able to, to talk and get ourselves here in this position that we're in. and You just go on and on. All those things you don't even really think about. It's just an ordinary thing. Uh, but God is so gracious in, in giving all those the physical elements. Um, none of us deserve anything. Not a thing. We don't deserve a thing. Did you know that Adam didn't even deserve anything even before the fall? Even before he sinned, he didn't deserve it, did he? He didn't deserve it. Um, the gift of life, that's gracious. Just to have life. Uh, but this is not really the ordinary way that the Bible speaks about grace. Uh, the fullness of grace is really seen against the backdrop of sin. If you have an item, let's say uh, a piece of jewelry that's gold, and you just put it out and, and there's other things, yeah, yeah you're going to see the gold and everything, but if you put a backdrop of black behind that, or, or if it's silver, and you drape that around, you see how people put things on display, now you really see it in, in its full array. Um, the fullness of grace is seen against that backdrop of sin. That's what we see in Genesis chapter 3. Uh, grace put on display like uh, we would never ever imagine. As for Adam, it's God's gentle dealing with humankind who deserved to be taken out immediately to be thrown into hell and this is all after the fall but yet in this chapter and in this graciousness we see the promise of a redeemer for the first time first two chapters of Genesis we don't see anything about redemption because there wasn't any need for redemption there wasn't any sin but he immediately does it you think well why didn't he hold on for at least a chapter or two or a few hundred years and then start showing uh, grace but he did it immediately with them that's how good of a God we have uh, later on you see as, uh, as it develops and God chooses a nation to work through the nation of Israel and we see his grace on them all the way through even despite their sin their wickedness he still promised a Redeemer that would come through them. And the punishment, the judgment He had to bring upon them, bringing the nations against them, but yet His grace was still found there. And I think it's just incredible to see that. Grace actually means that God has provided for us in every possible way, both physically, mentally, spiritually, 
financially. Okay, you go on and on all that. The L-Y means it. But there's a condemnation upon this sin. There has to be because He's a just God. We, we deserve condemnation, don't we? We deserve that. Um, God's grace is abounding. Um, abounding grace. It abounds over all the sin. Completely smothers it. And grace always wins. So, all this grace that God has comes despite the sin of mankind. And we see that right here in this great chapter 3. Let's uh, pray. Father, we thank You for such a beautiful day. Uh, just a gorgeous day that uh, just gives us a little glimpse, uh, a reminder of how great the kingdom will be that will far surpass what we uh, experience in this life whenever we see the good things of You. And uh, yet, uh, it's it's always Your grace that uh, gives us this, the common grace that uh, spreads out to uh, every man, woman, and child as You take care of them. But yet, at the same time, there's a special grace that You have given to us because of the Redeemer who paid the ransom for us. And uh, we thank You as we look at this great chapter, this chapter 3 that looks so ugly, but yet it's so beautiful uh, as we see your character, your nature uh, win out over man's sin. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of the great graces that we have, uh, before we go into the text here tonight, um, it's good to be reminded. Some of the great graces that we have. Um, Go to Colossians 1.27. Here we are in Genesis and boom, we just Flip right on into the New Testament. Uh, these are good to kick off with as we look at uh, this text tonight. Colossians 1.27 To whom God will to make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Did you catch that? Christ in you. Christ in us. Galatians 2.20 Therefore it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. There's another passage. And then in Romans 8.11 But if the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. The Spirit of Christ. God's Spirit. He dwells. He lives in us. We are in Him. He is in us. We are not Him. He is not us. But yet He lives in us. We live in Him. I think that's rather remarkable. Would you say that's a great grace? Do we take that for granted sometimes? Nice to be reminded in Another thing, while you're, uh, if you're in Romans, chapter 5, verse 16, we find ourselves justified. The gift is not like that which came to the one who sinned, for on the one hand the judgment arose from one transgression resulting in condemnation, but on the other hand the free gift arose from many transgressions resulting in justification. What's justification? Rightness. We have been made right. Declared right. Even though we're not. And He says we are. He declares us before His face. And we have been pronounced just. We are justified. Romans 3, 22-24. Great section. Even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, for there is no distinction, for all of sin, fallen short of the glory of God. We know that one, right? Now, here we go. Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. We're justified. Declared right. Imputed righteousness. Not infused righteousness. It's not where His righteousness is added to our righteousness because we have no righteousness. So His righteousness is put into us. We're we're pronounced um, justified, declared right. Chapter 4, verse 5. 
about Abraham. But to the one who does not work for salvation, but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly. Hey, isn't that interesting? Who was justified? The ungodly. The ungodly are not after Christ. They're not after God. He justified you while you were ungodly. I think that's rather incredible. That says it's His work, doesn't it? But believes in Him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. Righteousness or justification, as was just stated there. It's rightness. Justification. Okay, so, what are some great graces? What do we have? The life of God is in us. We are justified. That means we have righteousness now as we stand before God. And then the next one is joint heirs with Christ. Joint heirs. Do I have these on your outline by chance? Should I put these up here? Okay. The life of God in us. Then there's justification, or being made right, right? And this next one is that we are joint heirs with who? Jesus Christ. Everything that He owns, we will own. Wow. Romans 8.17. Notice we're hanging out in Romans quite a bit tonight. One of the greatest chapters on what happens to individuals who were ungodly sinners who hated God, and He changed us. 8.17 says, and, and of children, heirs also, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, so that we may be also glorified with Him. The mark of a Christian is that they suffer, and uh, because they suffer, they will be given uh, the kingdom of God with Christ. We are heirs. Co-heirs with Christ. Co-heirs. 2 Timothy 2.12 I would say these are great graces. These are incredible. Isn't it nice to be able to see some of these things as we talk about sin? Chapter 3. 2.12 If we endure, we will also reign with Him. If we deny Him, He will also deny us. If we endure, we will also reign with Him. We will be heirs. We will sit on the throne with Him. We will reign with Him. If we're Christ, we will reign with Him. 1 Peter 1 4. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter, chapter 1, verse 4. Uh, this is remarkable. To obtain an inheritance, remember we are heirs. This is what we're waiting for. To obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, it'll never corrupt, and undefiled, and will not fade away. It's all, it'll always be there. Reserved in heaven for you. And uh, this is talking about that living hope that we have. Uh, and it's all protected by the power of God. So it'll never corrupt. It, it's, it's waiting there, waiting there for us. We're joint heirs with Christ. So the life of God is in us. We are justified. We stand righteous before a holy God. We are joint heirs. And one more, Jude 24. Just before Revelation. Uh, which one? These are called great graces. We're calling them great graces tonight for lack of better terminology. Somebody might come up with a better term. but uh, Wow, thank you, Lord, for these marvelous wonders, these graces, the gifts that You've given us. Jude 24. Oh, you have to like this verse. Now, to Him who is able to keep you from stumbling. He, he has the power to keep you from stumbling. And to make you stand in the presence of His glory. One day this will happen. He will make us stand before Him. Right now we have a, a righteousness that's in us, but yet it, it, we've not come to the conclusion yet. But He says, presence of His glory, blameless with what? Great joy. Ah, great joy. Not just a joy, but a great joy. What do you think of that? Is that pretty great grace? Yeah. Matter of fact, I think one translation might even have exceeding joy. Goes over and abounds. Okay. With all that, 
<laughs> so this is what happens with God's grace. Those are just some of the things. You can go on and on and on. I think that's rather remarkable. This just comes from Scripture. You know, it's not my opinions here. It's, this is what, what he says. If I, if I made it up, it, it would be much shorter than this. I mean, it would not even be close to that. This goes over and beyond anything I can imagine what he has done. Okay, let's go to the garden. Back to Genesis. You ever listen to that show, Back to Genesis? Let's go to the garden. Let's go to the trial. You ready for trial? Well, the trial is on. It's on. The game is on. <laughs> the game is is that they're running. <laughs> they're hiding. Adam and Eve are hiding. And we, that's where we were at last week. And uh, so let's pick it up in um, verse 8. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Uh, This is after they've sinned. This is what happens. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? He said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? How did you arrive at that? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? Can you imagine the fear that he has now? Whoa. I think he was really afraid because he was naked or more because he knew what he did. Uh, I think there's a lot of things going through his mind there, don't you think? Yeah. Have we ever been in that spot? <laughs> Anything that you've ever thought of on something like that, I'm sure was going through his mind at that time. We know about this, don't we? Can we identify with this? The man said, oh, we can identify with this one too. Uh, the next thing you do is, uh, 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 you start thinking real quick. Excuse. The woman whom you gave to be with me, so it's God her now. <laughs> it's a problem. She gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? You can, she's got to be shivering now. Oh, no. The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, I said to the man, said to the woman, now he says to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. We will stop there. There's more to this. He'll go to the woman then he'll go to the Adam. Adam. So the serpent and tells what the situation is there. So we have an arraignment here. You have a court. You have to have the arraignment. God calls the man and the woman to court. Calls them forward to this judicial process that they're involved with. Approach the bench. I'm sure they would like to escape and get out of there. Uh, There's no escape. When you're called to this court, you will appear. (coughs) Now imagine if you didn't have the advocate, Jesus Christ, and you would be called to the bench. How would you like that? And if you don't have Christ, then everybody will go before the Lord in that great white throne judgment and be judged according to their works out of the books. God will call the name of the sinners to appear before His throne and there will be no escape. Every person will be before Him. Now, we have seen that there's also a judgment seat of Christ. There is the day of Christ. That's a different thing than this kind of judgment. We've had our sins forgiven. We will never be called into account of those sins. Okay, but there is an arraignment here. Go to Jeremiah 16, verse 16 and 17. Behold, I'm going to send for many fishermen, declares the Lord, and they will fish for them. And afterwards I will send for many hunters, and they will hunt them from every mountain and every hill and from the clefts of the rock. For my eyes are on all their ways. They are not hidden from my face, nor is their iniquity concealed from my eyes. 
He sees it all. He knows it all. He knows every sin. He knows every thought, every wicked way. He knows all that. He knows every good thing. He knows that. But uh, that's that'd be a scary thing coming before a holy God without really any defense. The best thing that they could offer was some kind of excuse. <laughs> now, there's an examination when you go into the courtroom. Where are you? Who told you? Right, as God says, what is this that you have done? He already knows. He knows that. God wanted to bring them to a confession. You don't see the confession. You don't see your repentance. This is what the sinner always does. He wants to cover up his sin. He's he's guilty. He knows he's guilty. Um, He knows that uh, there is shame here involved. And so the best thing that he's going to do is try to cover it up, blame it on somebody else, shift the blame, and sin just keeps getting worse. And so Martin Luther wrote about um, sin. And number one, he says sin is progressive. It just keeps progressing. It's like a snowball that just keeps on rolling, (laughs) gathers up more. Um, Luther said this, perversion and stupidity, (laughs) sounds like Luther, doesn't it? Perversion and stupidity always accompany sin. And the sinners accuse themselves by their excuses, by their defense before God. The more they excuse themselves as given excuses, the more the deeper that they get into this. They expose themselves even more. Have you ever seen anybody whenever they've gotten caught or, or little kids and they'll start making up a lie and then coming up with certain... And you know it's, they're just getting deeper into this. They're, they're digging a rut that they'll never get out of. And so sin is progressive. When you sin, what do you try to do? Well, you start lying about it. You know, God says you need to confess it. You need to repent. And, and uh, of course, without Christ, how can you, right? Well, the second one, Luther said, is sin is the same everywhere. Sin is the same as it was 6,000 years or so, back to Adam and Eve, all the way through the Old Testament, all the way through the New Testament, all the way today, and then covering all the vast continents. Sin is the same everywhere whether it's uh, different languages, different nationalities, it's still, it's still the same. It's, it's the same. Adam wanted to appear innocent, and Eve wanted to appear innocent, even though God knows all this. Do you think sin really wants to be seen as sin? Oh, that's sin. I want to do that because that's sin. No, it looks good. And because it's so good, we want to do that and sin is saying, hey, this is really good, see? Now look what you can get out of this. But sin is sin, whether it's dressed in fine linen or rags. Sin is sin. Whether one's in the ditches or whether one is in the White House. <laughs> Another thing sin does is it uh, blinds us to God's goodness. Here they are in their sin, Adam and Eve, and they're blinded now to how good of a God He is. They didn't immediately die physically. He could have struck them right out, right there. No explanation or anything. Boom, boom, that's it. As soon as they sinned, boom, that's it. Could have done that. And He would have been just and fair, righteous to do that. Because that's what His perfection calls for. That's what uh, His justice calls for. But God is kind. God is merciful. He said, well, it's just a little sin. All he told them was to do not one thing. Yeah, but they had all that other stuff that they had. They, there's the nature of sin, isn't it? God calls Adam back from sin. That's really what God is doing. This is how good that he is. He is recovering him. wants to get him to realize that he has sinned, to realize that there is... Uh, there are consequences because of it. Look what happens. But I'm still here as a good, merciful, gracious God. I, I think that's, that's staggering. No, no person can ever do that. Well, there's a verdict. What's the verdict? They're guilty. Yes. 
as they bring their testimony up. He did it. She did it. You you did it, God. Yeah. Romans three ten and twelve. Ten through twelve. As it is written, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands, none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Drop down to verse 19. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be closed and all the world may become accountable to God. Their mouths are shut. They can't say anything else. Here they are giving excuses to God and they are silenced. When the verdict is given, then there is a sentencing, isn't there, in the next process. And the sentence comes to Satan first, or the uh, serpent. There's a curse put on the serpent. The spirit of Satan is in the serpent. The serpent itself Satan is not that serpent, but he used that. However that serpent was, is probably a beautiful looking creature, standing upright. Um, the, the, The curse causes that snake for all of us to realize, even today, that's what snakes do. They crawl on their belly. And the reason is, is that's what God assigned to that. And it reminds us of the fall, doesn't it? So when you see those snakes that scare you to death, just think, that was God's deal that was dealing with sin. Ah, yeah, Bart. The interesting thing on this, and just another way to show his mercy, is that he's talking to Adam and Eve and asking them questions before he gives them their sentence, so to speak. He doesn't ask Satan any questions to give him a chance. He just gives them the first. It's amazing that he would even talk with them, isn't it, after that? Yeah. Goes right to them. There also is a curse on Satan. There's a curse on uh, that serpent in a sense, but ultimately it's uh, the spirit of uh, Satan is what's involved there. Um, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go. Dust you will eat all the days of your life. So there is that serpent reminds us uh, as the spirit of Satan was using that, but uh, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Now, there's grace there. Okay. Are you saying that that the serpent that's talking about right here wasn't Satan? Are you saying that there was something that was... Well, that serpent, serpent? the spirit of Satan is in that serpent. He's not bound by being that snake because he's a, a, a spiritual being. But he used himself to be able to be seen by... Uh, Adam and Eve. Eve was deceived by the serpent. must have been a beautiful looking creature. But he was not bound up by being that physical being. That's what he used to get in there to be able to now be uh, a physical presence as being a, a spirit uh, being like angels are. They, they're really, they don't have bodies. So they use that body. Matter of fact, you hear of people being possessed, especially in the Gospels. They they possessed people. They went into people, and you could hear there were voices that came out of them that was demonic. It was, you know, um, and of course we know about the they went into the pigs. They wanted something to go into something physical, you know, as the pigs were ran off into the abyss. There, yeah. does that help there? Yeah. Okay. Um, now Adam and Eve are hearing this curse. They're hearing this sentencing. I would think as I'm hearing it, yeah, Johnny's got right. Look at Johnny right there. Do, do that. Do, <laughs> uh, yeah, we're next. Ooh, would you be in horror? They heard the curse on the serpent. I think they're fearing greatly. But God's grace comes in and intervenes. I mean, this is overwhelming. They were, they were not banished to hell. They were not immediately struck dead. The verdict 
It's postponed. The verdict is postponed. We know it's, it's something like 900 years or so before Adam even dies. Physically. Spiritually, we know that there, there is something that has happened now, though. We, we know that. That immediately happened. But um, in the physical sense, there's not that uh, kind of judgment happen. He, he pronounces it later at the cross. There is where the sentencing happened. And it was put on Jesus Christ. Yeah, we have the sin and all the consequences that was in Adam. All those in Adam, anybody that's ever born is found in Adam unless they're found in the second Adam, Christ. So, uh, we need that second Adam because the curse was put on Christ at the cross. He bore our sin and our punishment the curse was not put on us. I think that is the center point of all of the history of redemption. As far as mankind is concerned, it goes right back there, doesn't it? And that's what we hold to. Now, that's part one. Let's get to the good part. (laughs) Okay, we've been to the court, right? We've seen this case happen. We've seen it come up the sentencing. The serpent has been sentenced. And we also see that Satan is sentenced. And yeah, Adam and Eve, we see some things, the consequences of sin. But as far as that spiritual end, we see something else happen. Verse 15. This is rather incredible. He's speaking to the serpent here, Satan. I will put enmity. I will put enmity. This is God. I'm going to put enmity here. Between you and the woman. I'd never seen this before until I read it last night and did some studying on it. I'll put enmity between you and the woman. Between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. What are we talking about? Well, at first, the verse doesn't feel... It just doesn't seem so wonderful. You have enmity here. Right? I'm going to put enmity here. I mean, that's not a good sounding word. And God says He's going to do it. That, that's conflict. I'm going, to put a, I'm going to make a conflict happen. I'm glad He did. I never thought too much about this. I, I, I have about the enmity, but God is doing I will put enmity there. I'm going to do this. I'm going to make a conflict between the devil and Eve, for instance. And it's going to continue until the time of Christ. And beyond. I'm going to make sure there's a conflict, that there is enmity. Enmity seems bad, doesn't it to you? I mean, I'm going to make a war here. Why, God? What do you have to do that for? This this is the struggle that's been going on since Adam and Eve. How can this be good? When you ask that question, God, you're you're creating calamity here. I mean, you're creating war. You're creating something here that doesn't seem good. We don't want to be friends with him. Bingo. We don't want to be friends with Satan, right? Is that what we're saying? Exactly. Do you know what would have happened if God would have not put enmity between the woman and the woman's seed and Satan? That is grace. That's what struck me as I read that last night and then I read... Uh, some quotes, I think it was James Montgomery Boyce. And I go, oh, man, that's about as gracious as he can be because our natural inclination would be to follow Satan because he has now taken dominion. They were given dominion over the earth, and who took it? Satan did. He is your ruler. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's ruling right The whole world lies in the lap of the wicked one, as it says in... uh, John, First John 5. So what's that mean? God was very gracious by making something happen between Eve and, and the serpent here. Uh, the enmity is good because God creates it. Satan is a fallen angel and he knows the terror that, uh, that he can strike. His sin was in, was in trying to replace who God was, 
taking his position, being worshipped by all the rest of the angels, as like he was the leader or one of the leaders in worship there in heaven, and uh, he thought he was so good that he ought to be promoted right up uh, to the hill where God is, maybe even replacing. Uh, so, that didn't work too good. He's got a third of the angels to come with him, though. Uh, now he comes to earth, and he wants to uh, do this with the humans. Let's just ruin them. Did a pretty good job, it seems like. He seduced Eve. And, of course, Adam um, sinned. He wins their allegiance, in a sense. The But you know what? He doesn't get the kind of worship that he was really after. Looks like he won the battle here, but he didn't really succeed because God puts enmity between Lucifer and Eve. Does that make sense? Is it like, did he give them a conscience to a good? So I'm saying the people even that don't know Christ still know there's a right and a wrong. Yeah, there definitely is a conscience that is given. Yeah, there's a blessing there that we can see. And of course, they they did now know uh, what right and wrong or good and evil. Uh, Eve was to have hatred towards sin or Satan. That's uh, that's God's provision. That's that's a good thing. How would you like to be loving the things of Satan? And worshiping him, some do that, but God provided this enmity. Right. People become hardened; they become calloused. But most people have some kind of conscience. Uh, they're um, like, in, but eventually, in Romans, they start approving the the wrong that people do, and so now they've gone all the way to the the other side Uh, I think we should be grateful that we are to hate sin love God hate sin I bet you Bob remembers that song do you remember Mylon Lefevre love God hate sin well that sums it up doesn't it love God hate sin Um, when man sins just a natural man he hates the consequences of sin he can sin and then Bad things can happen because of that. He's not necessarily hating the sin. He just hates the consequences of the sin. Nobody likes the punishment or or the things that come come with it. Uh, When somebody commits adultery, uh, there's just a bunch of bad things that happen. When somebody um, uh, is an alcoholic... uh, Look at all the people that it messes up. The family, wife, and the kids... Uh, the job, the people at work, uh, mom and dad. Look, 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 look at all the damage that happens out of it. They love that alcohol. They just love it. They love the drugs. They just love all that stuff. But they don't like what necessarily comes with that. So God makes sin miserable. He gives pain. because Sin uh, is terrible because sometimes it looks so good but it may take a while before somebody really feels that pain. And you know what? Gift is, uh, uh, pain is even a gift. If you didn't have pain when you touched something hot, what would happen to your finger if you held it on a hot stove and you didn't have pain? That's a gift. Well, the same thing happens as far as sin is concerned. We are sensitive as Christians to sin. And once we've done it, we hate it. Sometimes we don't know it's sin, we don't catch it, and then we see in the Word of God where somebody teaches it or preaches it or you just read it and now you're convicted by it. And you don't like it, but you say, Oh, sorry, Lord. Please forgive me. Thank you for your conviction. I repent. I don't desire to do that. Thank you for that pain. And then we might do it again. There we go. Start that process. Uh, But... You know, they heard God's loving voice, as Barb was saying there, even in that misery. And uh, that's how good God is. See, you can say, well, boy, you know, God, give him another chance. Well, he does. (laughs) He's a great God, isn't he? 
Um, I think one thing that we see out of this, that man's survival is going to continue. We know that. Uh, you go back to chapter 2, verse 17. And he says, But from the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Well, there is death, but it's much later. There is a spiritual thing that happens there, but still yet, look at this. Mankind is going to continue. The human race is going to be there. You look in chapter 3, verse 20. Now the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. That is something that Adam caught on to. There is going to be a continuation of Adam and Eve and what's going to come from them. The children and their children. So he spared them from annihilation. What a great God. Second thing deals with Satan's destruction. I'll put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. He shall bruise you on the head. Now we we know what that means. That's Christ. That's coming from the seed of the what? The seed of the woman. Never heard such a thing. I think it's amazing that uh, God here is doing the proto-evangelium. This is Christ, born of the Virgin. What a plan God had. And He's going to destroy Satan. Romans 16.20. Let's look at a few verses about the destruction of Satan. Boy, what hope this gives us. Yes. Yeah. Uh, uh, Proto-Evangelium. I'll write that down there for you. I probably have said it a lot, but I've never really probably written it down. When you think of proto or proton, what do you think of? First. First. Exactly. Ah. <laughs> okay. So first, and what's evangelium? In the Greek it means good. If you put you there. <coughs> um, and angelium is a message. Angel. We get the word angel. Angel means messenger. So it's a good message or good what? News. There's our first Good news that we find in the Bible after sin. Which one? Was, what was? What is it? That's uh, the proto evangelium. What is the first good news you're saying? Uh, oh, right here in in Genesis three fifteen. I'll put enmity. That's good news there. I mean, after we see that now between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, between Satan's seed and Christ, who is the ultimate seed that comes from the woman there. He shall bruise you. That's the Messiah. That's Christ. You on the head. Now, if you're reading this for the first time, you've never known anything about the Gospel, and you don't know anything about Christianity or anything, you're reading this and you probably go, what's that mean? To us, we, knowing the New Testament, can go back here and say, well, it's the Messiah. Sure, it's Christ. Right? And between your seed and her seed, He shall bruise you on the head. You shall bruise Him on the heel. Uh, where would you rather get damage done to your body? Your head or your foot? That means a, a, a vital blow will happen happen to Satan. What's our Romans 16.20 here? The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The God of peace. Isn't that interesting? That he would say the God of peace is going to destroy. <laughs> he's just going to go and stamp on him and just rub it in. But he's a God of peace. Yeah. Because if he doesn't do that, we'll never have peace. We'll always be at war. He's, he's put enmity between us and Satan. There's a war going on. That is why we, are, uh, we get explanation of what's going on in our lives sometimes. Ephesians 6 says we, are, we struggle not against flesh and blood but against evil forces, Satan and the demons. 
And here it says the God of peace. He brings us peace. He will soon crush Satan on your feet. Hasn't happened yet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. <laughs> Gotta like that. Well, let's go to Hebrews 2.40. He has beaten him, but we wait for the ultimate happening of this. He's, he's made the claim. He's beaten him. But we still wonder why is all these things, why is this still happening? Hebrews 2.14 Why did Jesus come here to earth? 2.14 Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all through their lives. He's going to render powerless the one who had the power of death, who brought death through sin. Look in 1 John 3.8. The one who practices sin is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. Which is to, it brought on death. He's going to destroy that. Revelation 20, verse 10. And this is the ultimate. This is when it will finally come to the culmination. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Amen. He's defeated. We can shout. Amen. Great. devil is beaten. Finally, we see the, the end of that. As far as God is concerned, it's already happened. But we... Uh, will be absolutely convinced when this happens. We'll never have a war with him again. Right now we do. Still do. But we've already... The, 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 the power of sin and death, it's, it's really been canceled. It's been broken. has no power over us anymore. What happens when we die? We go to be with the Lord anyway. It's, it's been done. So, we have assurance of man's survival here in this Genesis 3, even despite this sin. We also have Satan's destruction. Yes! And then we have the good news of a Redeemer. The plan of redemption. He will crush Satan's head. I love it. Crush him under his feet. Crush his head. Seed of the woman... Then enmity between him and the serpent. Between Christ and the serpent. Enmity between her offspring and Satan's offspring. There are God's people and then there are the people of the devil. And you, you see that starting in like Genesis 4, 5, 4 and 5. The, the godly line of Seth and on down through and the ungodly line. And all throughout human history, that's what you have. And you'll just keep following up through that. The godly people versus the ones that are ungodly. Uh, of course, everybody's ungodly, but if you're redeemed, now you're not. Redeemed, man, that's a good good name, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Bought back. That means we're, we're bought out of the slavery. We... we uh, we were blind slaves, dead to spiritual things. Enmity between Jesus and the devil. That's the ultimate. There's a, you know, we're pawns as far as Satan is concerned. Yeah, he wants to get victory over us. But what, what does he really want to get at? He wants to get to Christ. That's where it really ultimately comes. Did you know Satan? hated Jesus at every point whenever He came to this earth. He hated Him so much. The, the whole earthly story, you see it. You remember, uh, you remember Herod. King Herod wanted to do what? Kill 
all the babies two years and younger. Once, no matter what, he knew that they had to be at, uh, uh, no more than two years old, and probably less. He wanted to get all those that that he'd make sure that he would kill Jesus. Well, Herod is really inspired by who? God arranged the escape, and you remember the uh, the wise men. What did they bring? Frankincense and myrrh. What else? Gold. Ah. Mary and Joseph really aren't too rich. They're going to have to take a trip. An all-expense paid trip to Egypt. I think that gold probably came in handy. They're going to go down there. They're going to have to take care of themselves. God's going to take care, but He did. He took care. He brought these guys and they brought them everything they needed. (laughs) Isn't God great? Okay, so God took care of that. At 12 years old, he was at the temple and his parents leave and they forgot about him. They thought he was, they didn't forget, but they thought he was on, uh, you know, with, with the other maybe kids playing or whatever. He was, he was in the traveling troop and then they found out and they went back. Uh, where's he at? He's at the temple. Well, he's 12 years old. He's learned a lot. He's actually um, giving truths of the kingdom of God versus who? Probably a lot of the Pharisees who are really of the father or the devil, right? The father of lies. The religious ones there. Another thing is, remember the uh, the temptations that Christ had? There were three that uh, Satan did. Tried to use on him and... Uh, there's another one that I want to go to, and it's Luke chapter 4. I find this better. Very interesting. Oh, yeah, we get to do this and we get to do it. Luke chapter 4, Jesus returns to Nazareth. He has just been brought into the ministry. He goes to the synagogue. Everybody knows who he is. The whole town knows him. It's not a big town. You know, his dad's the carpenter and everything, you know. Stepdad, or whatever we call him. Luke chapter 4. They give him the scrolls. Happens to be Isaiah that he's reading that day. And it says in verse 17, in the book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. He opened the book and found the place where it was written. This is what he's going to read. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, sat down, and the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Okay, what's he going to teach about? This is great. He's supposed to read that. He began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. I just I fulfilled this. This is me. And all were speaking well of him, wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips, and they were saying, Isn't this Joseph? <laughs> I mean, the carpenter? Isn't that his son? And he said to them, No doubt, you quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done at Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. Uh, I heard some great things up there at Capernaum. Can you do it here? And he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown. They all know him. He's in Nazareth. He's in the synagogue. He grew up there. Everybody knows him. He returns and you know his ministry has started. He says, but I say to you in truth. Oh, this is where he gets into trouble. You guys ready for this? He's just read the Scripture. Everybody likes what he said. And now he brings on some truth. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah. Okay? When the sky was shut up for three years and six months, they know about this. It comes out of First Kings. When a great famine came over all the land, he's not teaching anything new. They know about this. And yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath. Huh? Yeah. Went to some strangers that weren't Jews. In the land of Sidon. Hmm. Ouch. To a woman who was a widow. I mean, a lot of strikes against Jesus here now. He starts bringing up Zarephath. It's not Jewish. 
uh, land of Sidon. We're talking enemies here. And it's a woman, and she is destitute. She's a widow. Oh, I mean, nothing's favorable, what he's saying now. And there were many lepers in Israel. In the time of Elisha the prophet, there were lepers who were Jews. And none of them was cleansed. He didn't cleanse any of those. He could have. They were Jews. Why didn't he go to them? No, he went to Naaman. Well, Naaman's a Jewish king or religious leader, right? No. No, he's a Syrian. Uh, a Syrian. You know, like S-Y-R-I-A-N? Syria and Israel? It still exists today? They've never had peace. They always hated each other. This is Naaman, a leader of Syria. <laughs> and God healed him from leprosy, and He didn't heal the Jewish people. Jesus is just saying, what was Scripture? You, th- you think the people in the synagogue are getting really angry now? They're really getting angry. Look at this, verse 28. And all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. They got up, drove him out of the city, led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. Passing through their midst, he went his way. Satan is working through these people to kill him. He is the father of murder, of lies. Jesus is just giving truth. This came right out of Scripture. And he said he could have gone to the Jews. He could have gone to those widows and the Jews. But no, he went. He went to a Gentile. And by the way, he could have healed the Jewish lepers. But no, he didn't heal them. He said, "Why didn't he?" Uh, he wanted to go to a Syrian, an enemy, and and heal him from leprosy. He didn't deserve it, though. I mean, the guy was bad, and he didn't even want to do what he was told to do—to dip himself into the. The river, Jordan River, seven times. That's ridiculous. So why do I have to do that here? I can do that at home, you know. Come on. And he wound up doing it. God healed him. Leprosy left. You know what we have here? We have an illustration of God's sovereign grace. You say, that's not fair. Uh, God does what He wants to do. It was part of His plan. This is sovereign grace. Sovereign grace. God chooses who He wanted to bring grace to. And there were other ones that seemed like they should have deserved it because they came from a particular group of people. And He didn't do it with them. We're talking about sovereign, electing, predestining foreknowledge of God of bringing on grace to whoever He wanted. And it makes people so angry. They're ready to kill. And when you speak of this doctrine, just like Jesus said right here, people hate it. First time you heard it, you probably hated it too. Because you can say, that's that's not fair. He should be able to save everybody. Well, He is able to do that. But He doesn't do that. Why doesn't He do it? Because nobody deserves it. That's the thing. Nobody, we've, we've already taken it back. Adam didn't even deserve before the fall, before there was sin, he didn't deserve any of that, did he? Sovereign grace. I think that's incredible. Jesus does this right here in the book of Luke. And by the way, he always escapes until it's his time. They could have got him right there, but he he just went right through them somehow in in their midst. Do you remember the storm on the Sea of Galilee? Uh, the disciples in the boat and everything. Some say that it's very possible that um, Satan brought on a storm there. He can do that. Reap uh, a whirlwind. He even was responsible for nailing Jesus to the cross as he worked through um, different people. But it was still yet their own choice that they did, but Satan's working through them. He He nails Jesus to the cross and he accomplished the very object that he was wanting to do. Satan thought he won. He got him there. He's nailed to the cross. He dies. He celebrates, but the weight of the atonement accomplished by the crucifixion, which the devil had affected, 
everything comes down on him. And he realized at that very time that he actually carried out the very purpose of God. God had all this. The all-wise God. I think of Acts 2, and we'll get out of here. It's, I started at 7.04, and now it's, it's 8.04. But you have to look at this in Acts 2, and, and this is incredible. Uh, all men are responsible for their own sin and for what they do, but yet God has a plan and a purpose in what He did with Christ. Uh, and Peter preached this um, in Acts 2.22. Men of Israel, listen to these words. Check this out. Jesus of Nazarene, this is who we're talking about, he says, a man attested to you by God because he did miracles and wonders and signs, you saw him, which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know, this man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, that means God had already planned this out. That He would go to the cross. You nailed to a cross. God planned it out, but man still did it, and they're hell responsible. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put Him to death. But yet it's all in God's plan. But God raised Him up, again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for Him to be held in its power. Alright. What do we have there? Well, what... Satan failed to see is that, and and no one ever sees it until the Spirit of God gives it to them. What he couldn't see before this this whole idea of the cross, which Christ was put on, and Satan thought he had the victory won, is how God could be both the just and the what? The justifier. Because what Adam and Eve did, they're not just, and they're held in their sin until somebody can take their place who is perfectly just, 100% righteous, never with any sin whatsoever, and also justify them in his act on the cross. Satan couldn't see that. Man can't see it today, and that's why there's only two religions in all the world. There's Christianity, which is grace. And all the other religions are works. And God hates it. He condemns all that other religion because He says, it's my grace alone. And there is nothing you can do to, to satisfy my justness. It has to be what Christ did. The just and the justifier. Most people can't catch this. Matter of fact, nobody can until until God reveals it to them. Um, he took the place of sinners. He took our place. He bore the punishment. Satan and his power was broken at the cross. John Gerstner said, this was the biggest blockhead in the history of the universe that he actually thought he could outthink the all-wise or and overpower the Almighty God. What an idiot. So even Satan has to do the will of God. He wound up in God's plan. Incredible. Carmela. Absolutely. Nobody was ever. Uh, you're right on. Nobody was ever going to get him or take him until that very point. He allowed that, and even on his whenever he died, it was his timing. Total control. We're just going to take a couple of verses here, and, and we're going to close. Ready? I'm sorry. Look in Colossians. Colossians two. This really helps. I mean, this might be the only one to do. Uh, you, know, you guys are really, you know, you're really kind for letting me go over sometimes, but I, I try to keep it on time because I know it's a Monday night, and for you guys to come all the way out here and to do this week after week after week and be committed to that, you know, because I know there's things that we have to do, and we, you know, we got to get to work tomorrow and all that, so I don't want to take a lot of time, but. You ready? Here we go. I'm just going to read it. 
When you were dead in your transgressions, when you, when you were dead, and the uncircumcision of flesh, He made you alive together with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, which was hostile to us, and He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross when he had disarmed the rulers and authorities. That's what's happened so far. He disarmed them. He showed his victory, and he flaunted it as he went right on into into what we think of heaven. He made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him. God wins. The victory is won. And we will see that come into culmination. Ultimately, the cross is where it happened. Uh, the title deed uh, will then come back with him and he will proclaim and show uh, everybody that he is the winner. He already knows that. What a God we have. Do you see grace in the story of mankind's redemption in this story of sin? Do you see the backdrop of how dark it was? But do you see the silver just glimmering? That is God's story. There is nobody that can ever make this story up. So what we've just looked at, is it's, this is all God's story. It's amazing. Thank you guys for coming out. Appreciate the uh, comments and everything. It's been good. Thank you for keep doing this. And uh, we'll keep praying as uh, we try to, in the Lord's will, that this, uh, this Monday night Bible study as it uh, can continue really special to, to me and I think all of us. Bob, would you mind closing us there? Father, we-